The psalmist says in Psalm 37, Be still. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Uh, Waiting is something all of us experience uh, in and throughout our lives. Uh, Some waiting feels a bit uh, frustrating, maybe annoying. Waiting in traffic, waiting in a long checkout line. Uh, Other waiting may be troubling, uh, concerning to us, waiting to hear back regarding a medical test or condition, waiting for a loved one to return from a long trip, a deployment. Now, some waiting involves real joyful, longing uh, expectation, waiting for that wedding day uh, to finally arrive, uh, waiting for graduation perhaps, or that next chapter in your life that you're, you're looking forward to. Much of life can involve waiting, but there's one thing that all of us, all of the people of God, are to wait for with the most expectant joy, with the greatest anticipation and hope. That is Advent. Advent. The coming of the Lord. The presence, the coming of the Lord. We've entered this season that many Christians recognize and celebrate and participate in. The season of Advent. Advent, that's a word that refers to the coming or the arrival or the appearance of the Lord. So while we've been in a series through the book of Daniel, and if you recall most recently, his three friends are on the verge of being thrown into a fiery furnace. They're going to have to hold on for about a month. We're going to have to hold on. A little preview, it turns out okay. Okay. Uh, But our attention is going to shift and we're going to be giving our attention over the next month, to four texts leading up to Christmas from Isaiah. Another prophet, the prophet Isaiah, all focused on Advent, focused on these descriptions or vignettes that reveal this coming servant, this servant of the Lord that would come to the earth. So the first is Isaiah chapter 42. A few books prior to Daniel, Isaiah 42, and it will be verses 1 through 9. The Lord's chosen servant. Let's give our attention to God's Word. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you 
of them. A couple summers ago, I had the opportunity to, to backpack through some of the uh, white uh, mountains. It was a summertime. I went with a couple of people, including one of our, our members, Mark Franson, who led the group, which was a great blessing, possibly risky as well, uh, or both. Uh, no, it was a great joy. But if you're like me and somewhat unfamiliar with the White Mountains, among them is a range of mountains uh, called the Presidential Range. And it consists of, I believe, the highest uh, peaks within the White Mountains. And um, not real, real high, but still uh, somewhat rigorous. And uh, they're named after American presidents. Mount Madison, Mount Adams, Mount Jefferson, uh, Mount Washington, perhaps the most well-known. Uh, when you're hiking them, you're often only seeing what's right in front of you, the, the path you're on. Perhaps if you stop, maybe you can see another uh, a mountain in the distance. But close proximity limits your sight to kind of a single mountain or, or two. But if you're miles away driving toward them, or perhaps you were in a, a plane at a lower elevation, you could, you could see them from a distance you could see more easily that each peak, each mountain is a part of a larger range. That each is contributing to a larger vista or vision of something. And it's been said that the Old Testament as a whole, and certainly something like the book of Isaiah, can be viewed in a very similar fashion. And so I want us to step back and see the larger vista or vision from Isaiah's perspective, and then zero in more narrowly on these individual peaks or descriptions of this servant of the Lord that Isaiah provides. Uh, Isaiah was called about a century and a half prior to Daniel, by way of context, in the year 740. We know this because of what chapter 6 tells us. Chapter 6, you may recall, uh, Isaiah receives his calling to the ministry and he has that glorious uh, vision of the Lord and the train of his robe filling the temple and the, the, the angelic beings saying to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Where we're told there that Isaiah saw that and was called in the year that King Uzziah died. And we know history tells us that's 740. So about a century and a half prior uh, to, to, to Daniel. But at this time, the people of God are at a low point. Things have gone from bad to worse among the church in the Old Testament, the people of God. You know that right from the opening verses in chapter 1, or the opening chapter of Isaiah. We hear words like this from uh, the Lord through Isaiah. My, my children I have reared, they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, but Israel, my people, do not know me. O sinful nation! offspring of evildoers. They have forsaken the Lord. We learn that their worship had become corrupt, not only in outward form, not following after the pattern that the Lord had given them, but void of heartfelt devotion. The very center of, of, of biblical religion, to love the Lord, that seemed to be absent. We also learn they had failed in bringing the light of the gospel, or the light of who God is and was and the mighty works that he had done to the surrounding nations, something they were called to do and to be. So they were a people, in a way, hoarding the things of God. And then we learn their land was filled with unjust laws, iniquitous decrees, robbing the poor, is mentioned, neglecting the needy, using dishonest scales in their dealings with one another. And so Isaiah's message in the first half of the book, chapters 1 through 39, 
is addressing his immediate context in the surrounding Assyrian crisis. Assyria is the rising dominant empire in the ancient Near East at the time in which Isaiah is ministering. And the northern kingdom of Israel would be exiled. But into the second half of the book where our uh, text uh, sits, he turns attention to those future exiles like Daniel, the Babylonian exiles. So he's looking down time by the time you get to chapter 40 and beyond. And uh, the mood shifts. So as you open chapter 40, you hear, Comfort, comfort my people. Comfort, comfort, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. A voice cries, saying, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. And so then Isaiah provides this kind of mountain range of four peaks, four songs. We call them the servant songs or servant poems describing this figure that would come, this Messiah, the hope of the people of God. And so we see these descriptions. Isaiah 42 is the first mountain peak or description of this servant that would come. And what a wonderful description it is and how we see it fulfilled so powerfully in the New Testament in the Lord Jesus Christ. But one of the central themes that perhaps you picked up on quickly emerging from the text is that of justice. Three times in the early verses we read about this servant who will bring justice. Verse 1, He will bring justice to the nations. Verse 3, He will faithfully bring forth justice. Four, he will not grow faint till he has established justice in the earth. Justice. That's a central characteristic of the God we believe in. He is just and righteous. And it's a central theme theme throughout the story of Scripture. It it surfaces early in Genesis chapter 4 as Cain carries out the first murder and takes the life of his brother, Abel. And what does the Lord say to Abel? What have you done? Your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Among other things, that is the voice of justice. To put right something that has gone wrong. Later, uh, the theme of justice becomes central to the whole Old Testament community of God as a result of God delivering them from slavery in Egypt. In Exodus 3, I have surely seen the affliction of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters, their oppressors. I've come to deliver them and bring them to a land flowing with milk and honey. And it's a result of God's mercy, saving power in their lives that they are then called to be a people who are committed to doing justice in their community among themselves and beyond. Perhaps it's best expressed in that wonderful verse in Micah, chapter 6. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? I don't have a particular life verse. I don't know if you have a life verse, but this would be one toward the top if I were to have one how well it summarizes what we are called to be about as a people. To do justice, love kindness, that's that hesed, that steadfast love, 
and to walk humbly with our God. The term justice, as used in Isaiah, which Isaiah says the servant will bring forth, sometimes it's translated and meant uh, uh, to convey judgment. Judgment. A righting of wrongs. Punishment for evil. At other times, it's translated the same word and meant to convey righteousness or a sense of holiness, goodness, truth, that which causes flourishing for life in this world. It seems to me both are being conveyed in the passage of Isaiah. Amos chapter 5, verse 24 is a parallel statement that uses the same Hebrew word translated in both justice and righteousness. Amos 5.24, Let justice roll down like the waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This servant brings both. And I want us to see some initial things here about this justice. For one, in Isaiah's day, it was something uh, that would be future and expansive and progressive. He, the servant, will bring forth justice. He, He will not grow faint till He has established justice. And it is true in our day. Remember that our Lord Jesus came and began His ministry proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. He has come to inaugurate a kingdom, but not in its fullness. The kingdom comes like a seed, and it grows, and it expands. And so it is with His righteousness to the ends of the earth. The exiles needed to know that a light would come. Light would dawn. Things will not remain as they are. And Christmas reminds us of this. That in the coming of the Lord Jesus, His birth, His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension and session at the right hand of God, a kingdom has come. A kingdom of righteousness. You and I are first citizens of that kingdom before we are citizens anywhere else. Brought in to that kingdom. To join the chorus that sings, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. So it is something that Christ inaugurated, but something progressive. Additionally, the righteousness, the justice, is for all the nations. As the text says, He will bring forth justice to the nations. This is what Israel, in part, failed to do. Verse 4, the coastlands wait for His law. It's communicating the most remote parts of the world. So easy it is to to grow faint or discouraged ourselves when we look out at the world. But this servant, we need to keep our eyes fixed upon Him. He does not grow faint. Relentless in His task. The justice is established. Perhaps most importantly, this justice and righteousness can only be established by the work of the servant. Notice the language of verse 1. The servant is chosen. He's the appointed man, the qualified person. Behold my servant, my chosen. To be chosen by God, Yahweh, is to become his servant, among other things. 
That's part of, part of what it means to be chosen by God. That means to become His servant. But this is the servant of not any king. This is the servant of the king of creation. So the language of servant, the title of servant, is a royal term or title. He has a royal or regal work to do, a kingly work. It's to bring justice, righteousness, and order to society and the world. Israel knew what it was to be chosen by God, as I trust many of us know what it means to be chosen of the Lord. But they're learning here that their election, their hope and effectiveness is directly bound to this servant figure. That it would not be through them alone, the nation of Israel alone, but their identity and unity with this servant, the true Israelite. That light would go to the nations. That this servant had the law, had the words that would be foundational for a just and righteous nation. And this I want to emphasize and encourage us in. Biblical justice, so important to our Lord, justice centers not only on man's relationship to man within a nation or society, the the laws that govern how a people function one to another, what's right on a horizontal level. Biblical justice is also about how a people or nation relates to the Lord who is king of kings, king of nations. So that a truly just person or people will be a God-fearing, God-centered, God-honoring, God-worshipping, God-following people. We are to represent that voice. Uh, The theme of justice is all around us. We live in a land filled with laws, uh, courthouses, uh, riddle uh, the states throughout. And the nation's capital is the Supreme Court, of course. You make your way to that courthouse up the steps, you see in big, bold letters engraved, equal justice under law. Two marble statues on the right and left side of of, uh, the courthouse. One is of a a woman under her arm as a book of laws. She's contemplating justice. On the other side is a man, a figure, who also has holding up a, a set of laws. Behind it is a sword, the executor of law, guardian of justice. We think about economics, race, marriage, freedom, education, Important and at times challenging, right? Conflicting are the subjects that a nation will wrestle with. Even war over and seeking to advance what they understand justice to be. And how important? Not easy. But Isaiah reminds us that righteousness is not merely something to advance horizontally, but vertically. Which is why we hear words throughout the Scriptures like Psalm 2. Where the psalmist says, Therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the Son, the servant. Take refuge in Him. Or Psalm 33, The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man, all their deeds. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh. 
the Lord. The truly and thoroughly just person or nation is the one whose heart God has written His law of righteousness and grace upon it. And that's what the servant comes to do. The servant not only comes to establish justice and extend His law, but to write His law on the hearts of people to make them know and love His righteousness, to become righteous. He comes not only to reign as a king, but He comes as a servant. He he transforms people. So let us give our attention here to verses 2 and 3. He will not cry aloud, or lift up his voice. A bruised reed, this is the work of the servant, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Two pictures or metaphors that were given here. A bruised reed. Picture that. It's just a a slender-leaved plant, just mere grass, vulnerable, weak, growing by the margin of some river or pond. And what about it? It's bruised. Its sides are crushed, bent by some gust of wind or animal, trampling upon it. It's kind of hanging on by a mere thread. But it is not yet snapped or broken off. Listen to the words of the Puritan uh, Richard Sibbs who wrote a work called The the Bruised Reed. He says, But blessed be God, there emerges from the metaphor, from the picture, not only the solemn thought of the bruises by sin that all men bear, but the other blessed one, that there is no man so bruised as that he is broken, none so injured that restoration is impossible, no depravity so total but that it may be healed, none so far off, but that he may be brought nigh. No man has sin fastened its venomous claws so deeply, but that these may be wrenched away. In none of us has the virus so gone through our veins, but that it is capable of being expelled. The reeds are all bruised. The reeds are none of them broken. Perhaps you feel bruised in your life. Injured, hurting, like a bruised reed. Vulnerable, blown by the winds of a hard situation, a painful relationship, the battering of sin within the pain of loneliness. The servant comes like a physician to apply the balm, the ointment of his grace. Sometimes we may continue bruised because we have a wrong view of who God is in the first place. A a lopsided view of our Lord. Maybe we only see Him, or primarily see Him, as a judge. Like a courthouse, essentially, issuing out judgments. At the end of the day, our life can feel like a list, just sins of omission, commission. In thinking about this, the the song came to mind, unfortunately. 
you're going to hear the song, whether you like it or not, it's coming. We're in that season. Making a list. Checking it twice. Going to find out who's naughty or nice. Our Lord Jesus is no uh, Santa Claus. He is mysterious. He is a mighty judge. His judgments can be harsh. But He is more than that. Again, listen to Sibs. For further declaration of Christ's mercy to all bruised reeds, consider the comfortable relationships He has taken upon Himself as husband in Scripture, shepherd, brother. I would add friend. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room. A bruised reed He will not break. And then a faintly burning wick He will not quench. Sometimes in our lives there may appear the tiniest spark of grace or faith. But even that, our Lord knows it and He will not put it out. As the Lord said through Zechariah, don't despise the day of small things. The Lord can grow it and He will. Jesus says, come to Me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Learn from Me, I'm gentle. I am gentle, Jesus says. You'll find rest for your souls. That's part of what these metaphors are getting at. The kind of character this servant has and the attention that he gives. Gentleness. It's also how we are to be one to another. Once again, Sibs. It would be a good contest among Christians to labor to give no offense and the other to labor to take none. The best men are severe to themselves, but tender over others. One of the things that it seems to me the church needs to to live, to flourish in, in a world like Isaiah's or the exiles or our day, or this season, Advent, which is often filled with all kinds of potential distractions, is a vision. A vision big enough to live for with so many competing purposes out there. Beautiful and glorious enough to grip us, our hearts, with wonder and amazement. Worthy enough to persevere after. Righteous and loving enough to want to extend it to others. That's what we have in this servant. In this person. A vision, picture, glorious, good, holy, worthy, righteous to live for. The, the attention in this text even tightens as you move from verse 4 into 5 and 6. Isaiah moves from third person usage to direct address. In the earlier verses, he will bring forth justice. He will not faint to verse 6, direct address. I am the Lord. I have called you, speaking of the servant, I have called you in righteousness I will take you by the hand. I will give you as a light for the nations. So we're listening into a conversation in a way. Words from God to the Lord Jesus. And in Matthew 12, Jesus is identified as this servant, quoting from these very words here in Isaiah 42. 
this chosen servant. Christmas celebrates the coming of this servant. Prepare him room, we sing. Is he occupying the room of your life, of your heart, of my heart? And has he served you? Has he washed you in his cleansing grace through his shed blood? When a guest comes over, we might uh, say to them in our home, make yourself at home. Unless that means throwing your dirty laundry around. What we mean, what I have, the space I occupy, is yours. Is yours. Are we yielding the space of our life to Him who gives life? The servant comes to know a people. Many will say to me, Jesus said in in the Sermon on the Mount, many will say to me on that day, did we not prophesy? Did we not do mighty works? And Jesus says, I never knew you. He comes to know a people and for those people to know Him. This is eternal life, to know God and His Son, Jesus Christ. John 17 tells us, My sheep hear My voice and they follow. I know them and I give them eternal life. Let's pray together. Lord, how we praise You that In Christ, there is a servant, a servant worthy, a servant sufficient for the task before Him to redeem, to deliver a people from sin, to guide them in paths of righteousness, to fill them with joy and gladness, to apply the the ointment of His grace, to remedy our hurts, sin, burdens, We thank You that in Christ we have a great High Priest who has interceded and continues to do so, who who without sin yet empathizes with our weakness. Lord, may we know You, Father, Son, and Spirit, afresh, deeper, through this Advent season. Remind us of, of the glory of Your coming as we live in between these Advents of Your first and second coming. Yet You are a God who is present with us. We trust in You, O Lord, not in ourselves. We commit ourselves again to You this day, Lord. Individually, corporately, as a people. Guide us, Lord, as our great God. For this we pray in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.